If you haven't figured it out by now, I love books. And if there's one thing that's almost as good as reading books, it's talking about books. And that's basically the idea behind W5H, Who, What, When, Where, Why, and How, a book club podcast where me and my co-host, Luki Daniel Cargento, break down a different book each month. In season one, we're talking about what's wrong with education. We got 11 episodes in total, and we're almost at the end. So hop on over to the W5H Book Club podcast on Spotify, Apple, or whatever you get your podcasts and have a listen. Right. This thing comes with no guarantees. We're going to treat you today, and then you will follow up with your family doctor. Right. That is the catchphrase that all visits in the walk-in clinic end with, except that the walk-in clinic is actually staffed by family doctors. Welcome to the Medical Dads Podcast, a parenting podcast by two dads who happen to be medical doctors. I'm one of your co-hosts, Dr. Stuart Harmon, a pediatric emergency room physician and father of four from Ottawa, Ontario. I want to be in the podcast. Daddy, do you know what you're doing? Can I play a game on your computer? Daddy, where's mommy? And I'm your other co-host, Dr. David Shu, a family doctor from Toronto, Ontario. Welcome aboard. All right, Dr. Harmon, we're back for another episode of Medical Dads. Hello, Dr. Shu. How are you doing this week? Excellent, excellent. So we're here to talk about part two of our ongoing discussion about the physician shortage yes. in Canada. But before we get into that, I had to tell you about my car situation. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so... We had this whole plan. We're going to record this episode on a Friday and Friday is actually my day off. So it's like you spend the whole week looking forward to your day off, right? Like, you know, you're counting all the days and, and all these things that you're going to do on Friday. Yes. Right. Like I'm I, my son's class. They're going skating and they invited the parents to hit the ice. So I had that on my to do list. Right. My wife's like, she's going to be off. So we're going to go have lunch together. So okay. lunch date with the wife. Right. All these things. And then I realized that my bri- my car is making noise, right? Like an unseemly noise. Every time I'm backing down the driveway, when I, you know, when you, I don't know, I don't know if you have this scenario in your house, but like we have one of these like driveways that it's kind of slanted. So as you come down the driveway and get to the road, right when you get to that part where it's starting to flatten out yeah. and you're turning or you're, you're rearing into the road, yeah. The car makes this like noise, right? Not a noise like, oh, you're running over me. Oh, stop. Mr. Shu, what's going on? So this noise has been going on ever since I changed the brakes a few months ago. So if listeners to our show will recall, a few months ago, I attempted to save money by hiring some side gig dudes who were just here to change my tires. They offered to change my brakes because they saw that the brakes were down to like their final millimeter. Right. Break, and I was the like, brake butler, how con- right? <laughs> the listeners go back and listen to the episode called side gigs to hear about the brake butler. <laughs> I was like, how conscientious you're not just looking at the tires. You're also giving me helpful advice about my brakes. Right. And I was, and then the dude was like, you know what? I can fix this for 300 bucks or, it might have been 350 I forget now. And of course, being the medical dad, I had no basis of comparison. Like 350 sounds like a nice small number, right? It's less than 500 or whatever. And I, I vaguely remember brakes being a pretty expensive thing whenever you have to actually get it done in the, in the shop. Yeah. And given that there's no other way for me to compare, like, you know, who should be fixing my brakes, you know... Everyone's as every mechanic looks as trustworthy as the next mechanic, presumably. <laughs> That's a big presumption. <laughs> <laughs> Let's roll the dice and see if we can save some money on this thing, right? And I and I guess people who've listened to this episode before remember that they they fixed the brakes, but pretty much right away the thing was clanging. I had to call them back later that week to to remove the clanging sound. <laughs> Anyways, what we didn't tell people was that they came back on the weekend, they fixed the brakes, but when they fixed the brakes they they told me well there's this little there's this little piece here it's this little wire hook thing you don't really need it that, that was so we're the, just not going to use it listeners know that that was in the podcast that like when right. someone builds a lego project and has a bunch of pieces left over and they're not sure uh, is that supposed to be part of the project or is it supposed to be left over that, that was your brakes they had a piece of spring or something that they're like oh don't worry about that you don't, you don't need that yeah so then so then anyways they left and i think pretty much the next day you know, the next day when I backed the car down the driveway, when I got to the 
part where I was rearing onto the street. It went, <laughs> and my wife looks at me and is like, what was that? And I was just in denial. I didn't want to deal with the fact that these dudes did something else to my brakes or this thing still isn't where I was just like, I, nothing. It's fine. That's a normal, <laughs> right? Are you sure? Are you sure the car's working? It's working fine. Just ignore the sound. And it's been about like, that was when I changed my winter tires. It's been about three or four months since then. So every time I do a rear out, I hear, and I'm just living with it, right? Because as far as I can see, in my professional estimation, the car is working fine. It's not a flaming coffin. Like, this thing's still stopping on a dime. I right? think you're getting reared by this car in this scenario in more than one context. <laughs> so then, two days ago, there was a bit of a snowstorm in Toronto, and I had left the car outside a little bit longer than usual because we had to go take the kids somewhere else using my wife's car so that morning when i came out the driveway instead of making sound the sound changed it became oh <laughs> like <laughs> you ran over somebody <laughs> no i'm just trying to simulate the sound of like a really really loud dirty break it was like like this <laughs> this very loud horn blowing like Rrr. Anyways, even my daughter and my son were in the backseat. They're like, what is going on, right? And even I felt like queasy. Like I was able to be in denial that the brakes were working fine. I couldn't maintain that feeling anymore hearing this sound. And, and then so I, we're driving to school. The first like three lights, every light, whenever I hit the brake, the sound would come back again. Even me lightly pushing the brake. And I'm not even going backwards anymore. I'm going forwards braking and I'm hearing these sounds. So I was like, you know what? And fortunately, the sound kind of went away as the day went on. So by the end part of driving them to school, the sound was gone. But the sound <laughs> was so noisy. You know what that reminds me of is like when you have a patient who's working really, really hard to breathe. And then, you know, <laughs> if you don't intervene, eventually they're not working so hard to breathe anymore. But that's not a good sign. That's just it's a not. sign that they can't. <laughs> it's like, oh, that drowning person is not yelling, help me anymore. Uh, maybe they're fine. <laughs> like Dave's breaks. <laughs> Everybody back to work. Everybody back to work. So, so basically I said, you know what, I'm going to have to take the car in. And it pains me to take the car in, right? We've talked about this before. The moment a suburban dad loses his car is sort of like the moment you cut his hands off at the wrists, right? He, he can't do anything with his day off suddenly, right? He's at the beck and call of other people needing rides and things like that. But I said, you know what? We'll drop it off here. So I, I bring it in and I kind of had explained to the guy that, yeah, like it, something happened with my brakes and I, I was hoping he wouldn't remember exactly because this time I brought it to my usual mechanic. Yeah. So then this afternoon, you and I said, we're going to record podcast at two o'clock and i get there at like 1 30 i'm like okay i want to pick up my car my mechanic guy comes out and he has that look on his face like he's like all ashen <laughs> it's, and, and you know how it's kind of like you just it's a it was a bad breakup because i know i was like almost cheating on the mechanic with this sidekick mechanic right but now this guy looks literally like he's been like adulterated or something <laughs> and just like you know your new brakes your new brakes are beep <laughs> like oh no right <laughs> and he was like he basically told me that these new brakes i got were complete crap they he asked me how much i paid so i was like well 300 something he's like you know brakes cost 400 dollars just for the brake itself <laughs> right not even including the cost of installation I, I don't even know if he's just telling me stuff now because he's mad right and and upset <laughs> or whether this is real but i have no reason to like you know I have I don't know who to believe anymore except that this is my go-to car guy and he has never made my brakes make that sound. Yeah. In all the years I've brought him my car, right? And and I really have to cut the cord with the side gig guy. I understand he's laying it on thick, but it was just a sad experience, man. It's just a sad experience when medical dad tries to save a couple hundred bucks and because of this, I had to go take him in take the car and he was like your brakes are pretty crappy, but they're not broken. They look brand new. They're just super noisy. They're probably made out of some lousy material. These are the finest 3D printed brakes on the market. I don't <laughs> understand. So he fixed it. They serviced the brakes. He's like, the sound is gone for now. For now. <laughs> right? And he, his, he gave me some options. My option was either I replace the brakes completely, yeah. right? Throw out these brand new brakes, get a whole new pair. Yeah. Which probably I'm I didn't ask him the price, but I'm imagine it's gonna run towards a thousand dollars, right? Or I just leave it as it is until the sound comes back and it might not come back, right? And I, I opted to go with this option 
and then I just paid him for the servicing of the brake, which was 500 bucks. So I just serviced the brakes for <laughs> I, maybe it was 300 bucks plus some other stuff. So I just, in an attempt to save 300 bucks, I have now spent the 300 bucks again. <laughs> that's, that's where we are. That sounds about right for car ownership. And so did the guy in servicing the brakes do anything other than just tell you that you have paper mache brakes and that you should get new ones? Or did he, yeah, do <laughs> he, did, he did something. I don't know what they do. I mean, this is the fundamental problem with taking your car into the shop when you yourself know next to nothing about cars. Yeah. Right. Like you, you, you not only know next to nothing about cars, but as a as a dad, you kind of have to fake that you know something about cars. So you can't even ask questions about cars. If I went into the car shop and I was a female they know I don't know anything about cars and I don't need to pretend I know anything. So I could just ask them questions at this point. I'm just pretending I know what I'm doing and I don't want to hurt the guy's feelings again. Cause I already tried to break up with him once. It's just a mess. It sounds like when uh, two parents come to the doctor and one of the parents themselves is, is a physician. Uh, yeah, it's like, <laughs> I, uh, I obviously don't have any questions about these breaks, but uh, for my wife's benefit, uh, could you just uh, you know explain it? Uh, you know, for someone who knows nothing about breaks, not not me obviously, but for my wife. <laughs> well, that scenario I don't know a lot about because the scenario I have is both parents are physicians, so you both go in asking no questions <laughs> because you can't be made to look foolish. <laughs> well, a good doctor will 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 recognize the uh, the difficulty in asking in asking questions mm. when you're a physician and they'll just explain it as if you know nothing regardless. Yeah. Now the irony of this, the irony of this whole story is that as annoying as my car day was, it seems like my car day was not as annoying as your car day, yeah. which really seems to take the cake. Yes. Yeah, so listeners don't already know the backstory of this, but Dr. Shu does. I would have been grateful this morning for a car that simply made noise. <laughs> when my car, when I tried to turn it over this morning, it was just pure silence. Nothing but the sound of the uh, of the multiple check engine light indicators on the dashboard lighting up. So oh. to, to give it some background, I worked an overnight shift last night. So uh, Dr. Shu and I had originally planned that we were going to record this morning, that I would just come home from that shift. We'd bang out a high-quality, stellar post-overnight shift recording, <laughs> then move on with our days. But uh, I go out to the parking lot, put the key in the engine or in the ignition, like turn it on and all, everything comes on in the car light wise so it's not the battery and it's a very cold day in ottawa here today uh, so i've had issues with this car that i've talked about on the show before where the battery just dies on a cold day but uh, mm -hmm. this was not the battery uh, the engine just wouldn't turn over whatsoever um, but uh, uh, all the electrical components were were coming on and you, you look at the dashboard to see okay which one of the lights that lights up that indicates a problem is is telling me what's going on with the car but the problem was there's all these lights on the dashboard that are all lit up. So there's one I recognize. I'm like, okay, that's the check engine light. Or, but that one's been on before. I don't think that's new. Uh, there's the uh, oil indicator light. It's like, I, I suppose my oil could suddenly have a problem with it, but I wouldn't expect it to, to completely not turn over whatsoever. I'd expect it to run funny or something like that. Um, there's the parking brake light that's on. I'm like, okay, well, that, that should make sense. There's a few other lights that I don't recognize. There's one light that uh, I have to pull out the manual out of my glove box to look and see what does that light mean. And then after flipping through the manual, it's like, oh, okay, the power steering is not working. But uh, something <laughs> tells me that's not the reason the car's not starting. It's like the car just gave up and just decided, you know what, you figure out what's wrong with me. I'm not going to tell you. Here's a bunch of clues of what it could be. Right. So... So I, I'm like, all right, well, I got to get home. I got this, this important high-quality podcast I have to put out. I, I don't have time to deal with this. So I just leave the car in the, in the parking lot at Chio uh, and then go to call an Uber, uh, which then is its own hassle. Is my, phone, my Uber app on my phone is, needs to be downloaded again. Uh, but I can't download it because I got too many other apps taking up space on my phone. So I call an actual taxi like I'm living in the Stone Ages. <laughs> I'm sure everybody can relate to these horrible first world problems that I have to deal with. This this whole story does sound quite bizarre when we factor in that every time you tell one of these car stories, I, I'm just blown away that we're both physicians and these things are still happening to us as if we were... Common, regular people. As if we had no money at all. Doesn't my car know that I'm a physician? <laughs> Doesn't my car know how self-important I am? How dare it stop on me? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you would think that if there's anything that you could do with your money, 
it would be to ensure that you can get home at the end of a work day, right? There's all the other stuff you could buy in the world. This is actually probably the most useful thing. Yeah, I suppose uh, listeners whose only sort of vision of physicians is maybe what they've seen on TV might be saying to themselves like, wow, uh, I didn't realize that a high-end Mercedes could break down so easily or, or that a Jaguar <laughs> would freeze up in cold weather. <laughs> Just... This isn't some fantasy world from watching television. I remember as a kid, there was a hospital not too far from where we lived. Yeah. And if we drove by, like my sister and we would turn to look in the parking lot and there was always a Ferrari there, right? Yeah. Some dude, there's some doctor out there borrowing money from the bank like crazy to pay for this thing. <laughs> well, it's true. There are, you do see sometimes these fancy cars with their vanity plates and the vanity plate mm. often says something like, you know, EKG or I fix hearts or something <laughs> along those lines. Yeah, not not so much for you and me. We're evidently we haven't invested in the right vehicles. <laughs> yeah, if you're driving on the highway behind the car and the license plate says medical dad, then uh, chances <laughs> are there's a guy pushing that car. <laughs> and if you hear a really, really loud noise, don't be alarmed. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> But uh, yeah, so in the end, I, uh, I took a taxi home. Well, I didn't even uh, take the Uber, which would have been cheaper than the taxi. But uh, I thought I would support my, my local taxi business. <laughs> which at the end, I, I remember the last time I took a taxi, I think I paid in cash. It's been a long time since I've taken a, a, a taxi. And yeah, it'd be, you know, uh, from here to the hospital, would be something like a $30 ride. So, mm. you know, maybe I'd, I'd give $35 and sort of say, keep the change. Uh, but now... Uh, the guy's pulling out the uh, the cash machine that you, you type your debit card with or your debit machine, whatever. Uh, and he's holding it up and he's saying, oh, would you like to input a tip? Your options are 15%, 18%, 25%. I'm like, this car ride already cost me $10 more than it would if I took an Uber. And now you want to, like, a percentage? <laughs> what about keep the change? Uh, well, you know... We could do a whole episode on this someday. This whole bizarre world of tipping and what's happened to tips since the pandemic. Because COVID affected many things, but it made tipping become a much more expensive proposition than it was a few years back. It's true. We could go into a whole side sidetrack on, on tips and tipping. For the most part, with COVID and all the businesses that were on their last legs or, or you were just grateful that people were keeping their business going, I'd often give these mm -hmm. tips, not because the service was so great, but because I either want to keep that business going. I mean, the taxi was there and the Uber was not. So I guess in that regard, the guy <laughs> went above and beyond. <laughs> yeah. So, so he raised his home, but we ended up not having enough time to do the podcast. And we almost didn't have enough time to do the podcast because of my car story. But now we are back, we are recording, and we are telling these car stories. So there, cars, <laughs> deal with that. That's right. <laughs> Nothing's going to stop this podcast, even if we have to drag ourselves home in minus 30 degree weather on our hands and knees. <laughs> now, let's talk about the physician shortage. Last episode, we've introduced the topic of, you know, there's a shortage of doctors in Canada, specifically in Ontario. There's a big shortage of physicians. It's gotten worse in the last couple of years. COVID has really magnified it. And then we talked a little bit about our own experiences dealing with that on the front lines of, you know, medical care. But today, let's talk a little bit about what happens to a patient during the physician shortage, because a lot of odd and not so great things happen to a typical patient when yes. they can't find a physician. And yes. sometimes we assume that it's as simple as, well, they just can't reach a doctor and, and they're screwed. Right. But there's actually a lot more to it than that. Yeah. I mean, where to begin? I can talk a bit from my perspective because when people don't have access to a physician, whether it be a specialist, a subspecialist, or their family doctor, uh, there's only one sort of place where you can go where you know, well, a doctor has to see me one way or another. Even if it's going to take a long time, no matter what time of day it is, I can go to the right. emergency department and at least I'll get seen. Right. So the, the emergency department is designed to be the last line of defense, the goalie, the last guy standing in front of the net before the puck slides into heaven or hell. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say it's designed that way. <laughs> <laughs> Might be good, actually, if somebody said, like, let's redesign it because that's what's being used for. But uh, certainly it does serve that function. Yeah, true. In fact, you are the first line of defense against all the acute 
major life-threatening emergencies. That's what you're supposed to be doing. Right. But somehow it's gotten flipped into you're the last line of defense against all medical problems. <laughs> yeah. It's like instead of being the first place you need to go when you're dying, it's like the last place that you'll end up when you can't find anywhere to go for something that's not killing you. <laughs> yeah. And if those two things seem kind of like they're the same, it's because they are now, apparently. <laughs> that's right. And so it does give me some perspective on the different ways, because it's not all just people who are simply, you know, oh, it's a trivial problem. And I know I could see my family doctor, but they're not available. So I'm going to go to the emerge. Uh, I mean, yeah, mm -hmm. there's a certain amount of that. But then there's a certain number of people who are there because they held off on coming to the emergency department knowing that their problem's not truly an emergency. But it took so long before their family doctor could see them that something that could have been a small problem now actually has become a big deal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's looking at it from the emergency room vantage point. So the emergency room is a place that if you have no physician handy, you often turn to as your go-to. The the other place in Ontario that a lot of patients turn to is the walk-in clinic. So I feel like we should spend a few minutes just chatting about what what on earth is a walk-in clinic and what that means because maybe people in other parts of the world don't have this thing. But now that I think about it, yeah. Because basically a walk-in clinic is a primary care clinic staffed by family doctors, people who have been trained in family medicine, but people who have chosen not to practice family medicine in that clinic. They're practicing walk-in medicine, which is a little bit different. Right. Right. And the basic idea of it is that a walk-in clinic is open, accepts business from anyone that comes in that day. Yeah. Right. They don't say, you know, these are our thousand patients and we're only servicing these 1000 patients that are known to us. We're open to anyone that wants to wait in line and can come in. Um, and because of that, there's this weird thing that happens where you go to a walk-in clinic and see the physician, whatever issue it is that you bring with you that day, they will treat you for that issue as insofar as they will guarantee that they will not be treating this on an ongoing basis. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> one thing we can promise you when you come to our walk-in clinic is that you will not get long-term care <laughs> for this problem. Right. No, this thing comes with no guarantees. We're going to treat you today and then you will follow up with your family doctor, right? That is the catchphrase that all visits in the walk-in clinic end with. Yeah. And it, it's also the catchphrase that all visits in the emergency room end with, except that the walk-in clinic is actually staffed by family doctors, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. So the funny thing about it is that people in walk-in clinics have the training, but they're choosing not to see patients longitudinally, yeah. right? So because of this, walk-in clinics tend to be about more acute issues, right? Yeah. Your coughs and colds, your ear infection, you know, your muscle skeletal injuries, all these short things that in theory of doctors seeing you one or two times can deal with and then you're back on your merry way and you don't really need to keep seeing them for an ongoing thing. It doesn't work well for chronic illnesses. You know, a person with like an eight-year history of diabetes needs their medications to be adjusted yeah. or hypertension. These things don't work so well in the walk-in clinic. And when you go to a walk-in clinic, the doctor there, the response tends to be, what medications are you on right now? Okay, we'll refill them. Okay, go back to your family doctor. See you someday, yeah. right? When you have a runny nose. Yeah. And and it's a, it's a really weird thing because as I think about it, it just boggles my mind that these actually are family doctors <laughs> working there. They're just choosing not to take on these patients as their own patients. And... There's many of these clinics because they do serve a useful function. And, and I get it. There are people who go through family medicine training and decide, you know what? I don't really want to see patients on an ongoing basis. Yeah. I'm happy doing urgent care, as it were. Yeah. But there's so many people choosing to do this that it makes you wonder, in a, in a country where there's a ton of physician, a ton of patients that have no physician, there's actually all these physicians that are trained, licensed, sitting there, practicing walk-in medicine, maybe that could be part of the solution to this thing. It sounds like you're alluding a bit to, to a possibility that, that maybe part of the issue with the doctor shortage is that there are doctors who are choosing to do the easier work. I don't know if it's easier or not, but it's definitely not exactly what you were trained for, right? When, you know, when you're training in family medicine in your residency program, they're not actually training you to do walk-in medicine. They're training you to do a whole bunch of different things yeah. and hoping that you'll take on the duty of being 
you know, a community-based practicing family medicine practitioner, yeah. which means keeping patients for the long term. And they're also training you to hopefully do some other things. Like uh, many family doctors also do palliative care. Yeah. They Some of them do anesthesia. Some of them deliver babies. Some of them do psychotherapy. Like there's a, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting field in the sense that there's so much variety. Yeah. But one of the things they don't specifically train you for is doing walk-in medicine. Yeah. Because in many ways, the walk-in clinic is the most straightforward stuff. Out of all that stuff I've just listed, yeah. the coughs and colds and refilling medications is the simplest thing. And most family doctors, you know, think of it that way, to be honest. Like, this is the most straightforward stuff. But the thing about it is, is it's good money. It's good income. If yeah. you can get a gig at a walk-in clinic, especially in this day and age where there's a shortage of doctors, you're your patient volume is always very high. There's right. always going to be like 30 or 40 people waiting in line to see you on a weekend or maybe 60 people, yeah. right? And if you get efficient at it, you can churn through those patients quickly. I've heard of places, you know, where you see 60 patients in a day, you're doing six minutes, eight minutes a patient, and you can get through the day. And I get it. You know, it's good money, fast pace, not a lot of emotional attachment to the patients, which in some ways, in some cases can be a good thing. But it does make you think that when we have such a big shortage that this particular branch of medicine is not helping the problem. That's, uh, that's uh, pretty fair. I mean, uh, the urgent clinics or the walk-in clinics, sometimes they're doing things that they gain expertise in that some family doctors won't do. So, you know, when somebody comes to the emergency department for stitches, to me, it's like, mm -hmm. you know, I would feel that with the medical training I had in medical school that that uh, with that alone, I would have been able to do stitches. So I would have thought a family doctor could do stitches, but some just can't, I, I just don't, right? And I know walking clinic, a walking clinic should. I, 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 I don't want to be judgmental, but I would look down on a walk-in clinic that's like, oh, we can't do stitches here. Well, well, first of all, the problem is not that we couldn't do it at the time that we finished medical school. <laughs> it's that every day that passes is another day further from that time when we finished medical school. And it's now been more than a decade since I last sutured anybody. Yeah. Does anyone really think I still know how to do this? Really? <laughs> which, is a pr which is pretty fair. And so I wouldn't really criticize the family doctor in their office for not necessarily be doing stitches if they don't get a lot of practice doing it. But then, then that is something that the walk-in clinic could say, all right, well, then they maybe are filling an actual need. Right? Like, either mm. family doctors like they keep up with their stitches uh, like skills or we we have something like a walk-in clinic that can that can do that for patients right I was doing the sort of virtual walk-in clinic for a while with the with the kicks care virtual platform that I was involved in before mm. and for me I could see how if you were doing that full-time well let's put it this way if, if I was continuing to do that full-time I would make more money doing that, working less hours than I do in my actual job in, in an emergency department. Um, mm. You know, just in terms of how much you get paid per patient. Um, and then at the end of the day, as opposed to someone in a family medicine clinic, you only have to deal with the problem of what you can deal with in that short time frame. And if it goes beyond what you can do, then you simply would say, well, this goes beyond what I can do here. So you need to see your family doctor for this. So you need to go somewhere else for that. Yeah. But I, I would have felt guilty doing that as my sole job. I would have felt like I'm shirking some level of my responsibility considering that I have a different job that I'm trained to do. So if I was doing that virtual walk-in instead of doing my actual job that I'm trained for, I would have felt bad. But <laughs> I didn't feel so bad because I was doing it in addition to my job. And it was helping some patients who had nowhere to go. But See. That's how the system gets you, right? The system has programmed you in a way that you're guilt, you feel guilty for taking on a, an easier job where you make more money, That's right? <laughs> They've made you feel guilty for getting what you actually deserve financially, right? You feel bad about it. <laughs> how does that make any sense? I guess that's the difference between uh, you in your office and, and somebody else in the in a walking clinic, different levels of guilt. <laughs> We're just sort of talking off the cuff with this type of thing. I'm not. We're not really doing a deep analysis to suggest that that walk-in clinic physicians are doing something wrong or, or, or you know, contributing less <laughs> than the rest of us. But when I was doing my virtual stuff, the real thing with it was that it existed because there was a, a gap or a problem in the system, uh, right? That's sure. what it was doing. It was, it was addressing a gap in the system. A lot of the patients I was seeing would have been better served by an in-person visit with a family doctor, but that this wasn't possible for them. The walk-in clinic, I think, has evolved over the last few decades because originally there was 
a doctor shortage. People couldn't get access to care from their regular care provider. Yeah. Right. Even in parts of the city where, you know, family doctors are plenty, oftentimes people have a doctor, but they just can't get in to see them this week. Right. And now you have a cough and a cold and a fever and you need someone to see you today. Yeah. So instead of going to your family doctor two weeks from now, which is what you're being told, they will go seek out a walk-in clinic. So, of course, because the demand for this exists, walk-in clinics start to proliferate and now they're everywhere. Yeah. And now in this situation where we have a huge shortage, people are lining up at walk-in clinics. They can't even get in at the walk-in clinics that easily. Yeah. Yeah. For, as a family medicine physician, our general take on it is that the level of care, because the because they don't know you that well mm-hmm. as a patient, yeah, the level of care in a walking clinic is not as comprehensive because they, by definition, are not able to deal with long-term problems and because they don't know you, right? They might see you one time and then two weeks from now, you're at another walking clinic down the street and three weeks from now, you're at another walking clinic and they're not designed to manage that issue. You yeah. ideally have someone that's kind of managing you on an ongoing basis. That's family medicine in a nutshell, <laughs> in theory. Yeah, a walk-in clinic is uh, is not meant in its design to be a replacement for someone who can't see their family doctor. It's meant to be for somebody who has sort of a minor emergency that's not severe enough to go to the actual emergency department. That's conceptually that's more mm-hmm. what it's for. But since we're really meant to be talking about this in this episode, from the point of view of the of the patient, how does the physician shortage affect the patients? I think this is one example of how it does. Is you have patients who, when you ask them who their family doctor is, they're listing on their registration form in the emergency department, their family doctor as somebody who works in a walk-in clinic. And mm-hmm. sometimes you have patients who the emergency department or any other sort of specialist is seeing them and saying like, okay, this is what I've done for you now, but you're going to need to follow up with a primary care provider. Like, like the rest of your treatment can't be us. It doesn't work if it's us. It needs to be your primary care provider. And the patient's saying, well, I don't have one. And the, the specialist is telling them, well, uh, go to a walk-in clinic and, you know, keep going back to that same walk-in clinic. And that's what there are patients who do, is they have Mm -hmm. a walk-in clinic and they just keep going back there and and that's become in their mind their family doctor, which is just a sign Mm -hmm. of how bad the situation is. Mm -hmm. Now, we've talked about the physician shortage specifically in terms of if you don't have access to primary care. Yeah. So you tend to walk into a a walk-in clinic or an emergency room. But there's also a shortage happening with specialists. Right. Even specialists like yourself, right? So, you know... I, I guess my question, the one I'm interested in, because I saw this in the news recently, is, is it possible for an emergency room to not have enough doctors? Like, does the emergency room actually have to close if all of you are sick or if enough of you are sick with COVID? Like, what actually happens in that situation? Yeah, you know, f- for where, from where I'm coming from, I'd be saying, well, no, an emergency department never closes. <laughs> you know, we soldier <laughs> on. Uh, but then there are actually emergency departments in this province that we live in in Canada, right? The province of Ontario that have closed mm. where it yes. just made headlines that says Smith Falls Emergency Department put up a sign saying uh, due to lack of physician and nursing staff, we are closed this weekend. Dry, the nearest emergency department to you is here, which is just right. when you think of what an emergency department is supposed to be, when you think of what an emergency is, the idea that you would get <laughs> yourself there and then see a sign on the door that says, uh, you know, sorry, Mario, the princess is in another castle. You have to go through like four more levels to get there. Right. So this stuff has started happening more, especially with especially with COVID, especially in the earlier parts of COVID, where suddenly you'd get one person with COVID and suddenly half the department is got down with COVID right for a weekend. And then do you have enough people to cover your shifts and so forth? Like this type of issue is actually happening in a what we think is a modern 21st century country, which boggles the mind for many of us. Yeah. But uh, I can at least speak for my emergency department that uh, the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario Emergency Department will, I mean, barring some sort of a disaster, like I try to imagine what, like a comet lands on it, we will never close. Uh, I mean, we may have a wait time that, that gets into double digits. We may only have one physician working there, but we will we will never close. It, it, the day that happens, that's going to be the day you know, Dr. Harmon weeps. Right? Where, where like, that never... sounds like a lot of blustery political talk from Dr. Harmon, <laughs> given that other emergency rooms have closed. Yeah, other, other emergency departments are not chill. But, uh, I mean, the stories that you're hearing about are usually the these small-town emergency departments. You know, I wouldn't expect something like the 
the Ottawa General Hospital, which is the adult hospital across from me, to full-on close uh, at, at any point. They, they couldn't. Okay, okay. So, so that's the emergency room. So it's not easy for an emergency room to close, but it probably can happen, it, regardless of what Dr. Harmon's saying. But other specialties, like let's say you need to go, you know, you have rheumatoid arthritis or something you need to go see a specialist from what i've heard it is very difficult to find a specialist for that i think actually you and i were chatting about that yeah. in your neck of the woods yeah. finding a rheumatologist is extremely difficult i went in and asked some of my primary care friends who are working in ottawa and they're like yeah you, you can't find that kind of specialist yeah. in ottawa and i was like oh, so there's this whole part of the country where if you have rheumatoid arthritis you're out of luck at this point you'll see this where uh, my wife needed a i can't remember what specialist she needed at the time but uh, to get one, the doctor, her family doctor at the time, said that it's easiest to refer you to a different city. And so it'll be a drive. <laughs> but would you rather drive an hour and a half and get seen right. this week? Or would you rather wait a year for a 40-minute drive? Right. So, so this lack of physician issue is happening not just in terms of primary care, but in terms of these certain specialties and access to certain types of care, certain subspecialty care, all of these things are feeling the pinch even more than they did a few years ago. Yeah, it, it used to be that you just, you, you told, okay, you've been referred to the specialist, but your wait time is ridiculous. And you know, people were upset enough with that. But now people are being told the specialist is just flat out rejecting your referral because the wait <laughs> time is going to be so long that they feel that it's impractical. They don't want to be responsible for you like, if something happens in True, between. That, that's a new thing. I've gotten these letters back. Yeah. Like sent, you finally send off a referral to someone, and then you get this letter back saying, at this moment, I am not accepting any patients. Right? This is a fairly new kind of letter. Yeah. In the old days, specialists hated writing that kind of letter because anytime you write that, I'm basically crossing that name off my future referrals. Right? And, yeah. and we're actually the ones feeding the specialist business. But apparently, they're so swamped now that they're willing to do that rather than say, I'll book them in eight months. I'll book yeah. them in nine months. Yeah. So I don't even want to know what the wait time would be if they were accepting people. You'll, you'll have one doctor who, who, who takes patients and then all of a sudden, everybody's sending patients to that doctor and then before you know it, you get a message saying, we are now no longer <laughs> accepting patients. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. You, you always get, I, I, I don't know if you read these, but like in the Ontario Medical Association, you get these new practice announcements. Yeah. So a lot of times if somebody's opening a practice in your community, you'll get either like something in your fax machine or, a, or in the mail saying, you know, Dr. So-and-so is accepting referrals. You know, we guarantee that you'll be seen within a few weeks. It all sounds so fun, so fine and gravy. Yeah. And then as I'm reading this, I, I realized, you know, this is just because they're brand new, right? Like you start sending them patients and you're really happy your patients are getting seen. And within three months, that wait time just creeping up and yeah. up and up. And next thing you know, not accepting anymore. Yeah. That's, the, that's, the, that's the process of medical care in Canada now. It's frightening. Without using hyperbole or, or trying to make it seem like a bigger deal than it is, from what we've discussed already and from what we know, it's fair to say that some people are ultimately dying because they're not able to get healthcare timely enough. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And I guess the most glare, like I feel like sometimes you need hyperbole because you need to, you need to, you need to shock people into taking action, right? And the news story where this always shocks people the most, but I don't know if it actually makes people take action, is when the patient dies in the waiting room of the emergency room. Yes. Right. That's happened a few times. And I think it happened not too long ago in Ontario in one of these towns. There's a case, uh, there's a headline just that they were talking about on the radio within the last 48 hours is about a mm. woman who died uh, in the emergency department uh, with some kind of abdominal complaint. They, they, they have been very vague on what exactly she had. But they talk about how the husband's saying, my wife was in excruciating pain and told me that she feels like she's dying. Right? It's pretty mm -hmm. hard to pretty hard for people to listen to, right? Pretty hard to hear that right. the patient said they felt like they're dying and then they did in the emergency department. Right. right. And this presumably this patient didn't get assessed. They're just sitting in the waiting room. They're sitting there, sitting there for so long that they die. And and there's been a few examples because the one I was thinking of was not just two days old. There was a one from a few weeks ago. Yeah. And it, it, it speaks to this issue of wait times in the emergency room. Yeah. Right. It speaks to the lack of primary care. It speaks to just the whole system bulging under the stresses of everything that's being thrown at it. Yeah. And this is just the most glaring example of it, I think. So we've defined that the problem is bad. <laughs> you know, what's the barometer <laughs> on this issue? It is bad. <laughs> yep. 
and to hear any more, you'll have to come back in another week. <laughs> but yeah, it, it, it just really is a bad issue from all vantage points and from the patient vantage point especially, right? We d- I had made a list of what happens when you don't have a primary care provider and we've touched on it. Like you end up at a walk-in clinic, your issue gets unseen, you eventually you could die, right? Yeah. Like all these things could happen. And, and I guess the one thing we didn't touch on because it's not really a patient thing is that as the system starts to get s- slower and slower, the cost of everything goes up. And, and this is a part that I think people don't often realize is that because you don't have access to timely care, now you're going to, you, you know, you're going to a walk-in clinic three times, yeah. right? And not getting assessed. Or you're sitting in the emergency room for 10 hours until you get assessed. All of these things have a cost. Yeah. And the vis- you know, instead of going to your primary care provider, now you're going to the emergency room, which is a much more costly visit, yeah. right? So the system is starting to, you know, we're employing Dr. Harmon to do these things he's not, you know, programmed to do at, and these are expensive things. Every time you go to a hospital for a test, the same test in a community clinic would cost you far less as a system. So yeah. all of us are footing the bill for that. Not only is the system slowing down, the system is getting more and more expensive. Yeah, absolutely. That is one thing I talked about Kickscare, that the virtual platform I used to do before. That was <laughs> that was one of the things that on Kickscare, there were times where I was seeing a, a, the same patient who I might have seen in the emergency department or, or a patient asking me, should I go to the emergency department? And, right. I'm, and I'm telling them, no, uh, you don't need to. And here's why. And I'm just at the time thinking, you know, this same patient who I could have seen in the emergency department would have cost the system so much more money than it does over this virtual mm-hmm. platform for me to tell them, you know, yeah, you don't need to, yeah. you don't need to come in. Probably, I think in one of the, in the weeks to come, we should actually talk about this money aspect of it and break it down a little bit more detail so people understand what we mean. Because it's not super obvious why the hospital would be more expensive yeah. than doing the same thing outside, but it actually is quite a substantial difference. Yeah, yeah, it's it's there's more involved than just simply I charge you more if I see you in the emergency than I charge <laughs> you in the in the walk-in clinic. I don't I don't really charge the patients directly at all, but uh, it, it because people are not paying out of pocket or getting a receipt or a bill, it makes it very hard for people to understand on their end what the costs are. But mm-hmm. they feel those costs when. There's not resources uh, because money was spent inefficiently in one way. Then they're wondering, oh, how come there isn't you know, a, a nicer mm-hmm. hospital or more doctors or whatever? It's like, yeah, because we spent those resources inefficiently because of this shortage. So it, it just makes the problem worse. And I've talked on the show before about the patient who is telling me, I'm in the emergency department now because five doctors that I saw before couldn't fix this problem. And, uh, and you're saying, if instead of seeing five different doctors and five walk-in clinics, you had seen your one family doctor five times, they would have solved this problem by now, I, I guarantee. <laughs> so there's, there's the money costs, the financial and non-directly financial costs. Right. As, as Dr. Harmon said, the situation is bad. We hope that we were able to paint a bad enough portrait of how bad the situation actually is because it's bad. Yeah, you know, if, 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 we, if we'd come at this from the point of view of we need to convince people it's bad, then uh, we would have uh, structured this differently. I would have just started giving you all these horror stories about horrible things I've seen. <laughs> all right. Let's, talk, let's, let's lighten the mood and talk about something light before we head out. Okay, awesome. So you and I have talked about parenting gadgets from time to time. And oh, I see we have you want to talk about not just light, but something light and crispy. That's where we're going with this. <laughs> it is possible to be light and crispy in 2023. And it wasn't possible when we were growing up. And I'm talking about the air fryer. <laughs> yes. I knew we were going to be talking so, about the air fryer. Go on. <laughs> so people who do not know, and I actually was one of these people because I didn't know what an air fryer was because in general, I'm not a fan of kitchen gadgets. I find that they take up a lot of space. Yes. They get used briefly for a few months when your wife is really excited about the purchase of this new item. Eventually, you start, you start pawning this off to your children when they become adults <laughs> yeah. because you just don't want this clutter anymore. I refer people I to, to our s- kitchen gadgets uh, podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but I have to say that the air fryer has been a nice surprise. We obtained one about three or four months ago and this thing actually cooks things in a way that's easy better tasting than traditional cooking a lot of the time and seemingly in a much healthier way and it saves you time like this is like the 
I don't know. It's not even a trifecta. There's four <laughs> things, right? It's like the quadra angle of benefits yeah. when it comes to the gadgets and cooking. I mean, fried food is delicious. Eh? Everybody, everybody should be able to agree that when you fry something, it tastes better than almost any other method that you can prepare that thing. Right. The only problem with fried food is the health problems that fried food can cause like everyone knows fried food is not good for you so it is like this guilty pleasure yeah and the funny thing about it is that so many people out there love fried food and we all know that we like fried food and that to date there has not been a way to replicate fried food without frying it right. for real yeah right like over time there have been so many attempts to do healthier fried food yeah and none of it ever really works yeah right even even Anything where you're trying to remove the oil from something just historically has never worked. Yeah. This is actually, from what I can say, pretty close. You know, it's not exactly the same as fried food, okay? Yeah. Let's, let's, we're not kidding anyone. This is, you're not able to replicate, you know, proper fried chicken here. Oh, okay. But it's, but it's pretty close. You get crispiness with almost guilt-free, guilt-free crispiness. Guilt -free. That's worth something. Yeah, I mean, when I first heard about the concept that there's something called an air fryer, I was like, okay, you can fry ice cream. You can have, I've heard of a fried Mars bar. The idea that you can fry air is awesome. It's like <laughs> even air tastes better now. But the, so, what does it actually do, this air fryer? All I can tell you is that there's a fan in this device. Okay. So it just heats up this little self-contained space to a really high temperature yeah. and then starts blowing air around it. And by doing that, it somehow fries the thing. Wait, so this doesn't actually, I, I imagine putting oil in this device, but it, you don't have to, you don't use oil. You don't, you don't use oil. So a lot of items, you don't need much oil. If anything, you just sprinkle a tiny bit of oil on it. Okay. Right? So the, so like, for example, you know, potato wedges work really well, right? And potato wedges are not a food that have to be super fried. Yeah. So, you know, potato wedges, you could make them in an oven, bake them, uh -huh. but here you just sprinkle a bit of oil or maybe even get away without oil and just air fry the thing for 10 minutes, 12 minutes. And it comes out pretty close to the potato wedges you would get at a sports bar, right? I, I was very surprised by that. And, you know, we talked about sweet potato fries as a go-to recipe. Yeah. Those work really well in the air fryer, actually. How about things like chicken? I mean, I know it's not going to come out like KFC or... Or Martha's Kitchen. It comes but. out pretty good. It's pretty crispy. Okay. And so at this point, you can play around with it. So we've been playing around with varying the amounts of oil that you sprinkle on it, uh -huh. varying the types of batter that you use. Uh -huh. And it is it comes out pretty crispy. It's it's much easier to make than... It, it's, it's just the same as making baked chicken, yeah. except it comes out crispy, right? And so you get, you get two-thirds of the benefits of eating fried foods with only like 5% of the guilt okay see uh, at my house it's not that my wife comes home with gadgets and then i'm the one who's like rolling my eyes uh that never happens that's an impossible thing in a family your wife is never the one bringing the kitchen <laughs> gadgets home that's a guy thing so so for us it's 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 definitely my wife is very reluctant to get any of these things that take up space or clutter in the kitchen and we we both mm. recognize that we like fried food but that a, a deep fryer takes up space and also like it's so messy and annoying to have to deal with the with the oil itself. Yeah. Um, so this could be life changing. I, I do recall visiting your family home once, and uh, I guess you guys enjoy fried food because I think you had like um, you have to correct me if I'm wrong on this, but you had your remote controls wrapped in plastic so that oil from the fryer <laughs> wouldn't make the remote control oily. Is that am I remembering that wrong? That that is not my family home. That's my parents' home. That's what I mean. Like and your, yes, like your home you grew up in. Not, in but that's not even from that's not even from deep frying stuff. This was just my parents' regular cooking on the stovetop. <laughs> like w in the house that we grew up in, just their regular day-to-day stir-frying yeah. of stuff released so much grease into the atmosphere that that we had to everything in that main floor of our house growing up was covered in this little layer of grease and my parents decided of all the items that they needed to preserve that the remote controls were the most important thing <laughs> nothing else was saran wrapped except the remote controls <laughs> but I, i'll say anytime i visited uh, dr shu at his parents place right dave's parents cook really well Right? And I mean, in those days, your dad was probably doing a, like a lot of cooking, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah, I always remember the food was always good. Like where I would be willing to wrap anything in my house in saran wrap if necessary, <laughs> if that's what I, how I was eating on a, on a daily basis. 
I I do now that you mentioned I had forgotten the saran wrap thing, but yes, that that was a thing growing up. And so my mom was always very like, you know, you gotta like when we moved into our own house, like you gotta turn on, you gotta turn on the the what is that called the hood fan? Yeah, the hood fan. Yeah. You gotta keep that on at all times, and just very anal. And I, I've never noticed this gas thing to be i've never noticed this grease thing to be a problem now yeah. as an adult so so maybe it was just a problem in the 1980s or 90s or something <laughs> the, the 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 environment just had less circulation back then <laughs> <laughs> but anyways the air fryer works quite well but but actually what i was going to say is that if your goal is to really use it to air fry everything uh-huh. and try to make crispy fried food that's not actually what i would recommend it for what it works really well for is for things like fish you know instead of baking a fish you just air fry a fish for 10 12 minutes for whatever reason it just comes out much better than oven baked fish it's a little bit crispier on the outside retains the flavor and the the moistness this device actually enhances your cooking ability and it's not about you know replicating fried foods without actually frying it's actually about cooking things properly in a way that's easier to do okay well, it's still. I feel it's still going to be a tough sell to get my uh, my wife to get an air fryer. <laughs> but if I can get her to first listen to this podcast, then I might be able to convince her to get an air fryer. <laughs> it is a bit of a hassle to tidy up. I will say that. So the air fryer, it it is basically this little box that sits on your countertop, yeah. and it has this one drawer that you pull in and pull out. Yeah. The inside of that drawer is made out of some nonstick material, and there are a couple racks that are made out of nonstick material or stainless steel yeah. where you can put the food. It's always a bit of a chore to clean that. Uh-oh. So that is my one Uh-oh. thing about the air fryer. that It's still not nearly as bad as trying to clean a deep fryer, I would imagine. <laughs> I think you just I think you just killed it for the air fryer that sells as you said <laughs> just trying to give the honest medical dad's take we we are not getting paid to promote any of these products so it's got to be honest about about the tape yeah all right air fryer an excellent one-time use product in the Harmon household <laughs> air fried salmon and okay these are the things that have worked salmon potato wedges sweet potato fries chicken wings actually have worked quite well yeah uh, yeah, things like that. I got. I am dying to try this. I just know. <laughs> don't know if I can get the the entire team on board. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you have it. An in depth discussion about how bad the healthcare system really is and air frying foods. Where else are you going to get that kind of content on the internet in this day and age? <laughs> That's right. And I would not be surprised if the this podcast sparks an air fryer fad, which leads to healthier diets across the country, which leads to fewer family doctor visits. Healthcare problem solved. Excellent. We will see you all in a couple weeks. See you in a week, folks.